I want to say good morning and welcome to worship again. Welcome to this time as we learn together from God's Word. We're going to be reading from the Bible together again this morning, and our ushers are coming up the aisles with Bibles. If you'd like to use one during this hour and don't have one of your own that you brought with you, please feel free to borrow one from them. You can use it during this worship service and just stick it on the shelf in the back of the room after this worship service today so that others can use it again next week. We're continuing with our series this morning called The Good Life, which is a series on Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And last week, we got into a part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus started to walk into very practical areas of our everyday lives, into experiences that we experience all the time. And that continues this week. But this week, I think Jesus kind of opens up a new angle on this for us. This week, we start to see how it is that the values that we honor and the behaviors that we practice are given to us or taught to us, formed in us or reinforced in us by the families, or if you extend family a little more broadly, the families and communities and groups that we're a part of. When I think about how this works, I think about some of the values that I learned from my own family that I come from. And one of the funny values that I picked up in our family is the way that we respond to getting sick. Here's how we respond to getting sick. We refuse to admit it. Didn't happen. Won't slow us down. We're coughing, sneezing, achy, feverish, ready to throw up, so we get dressed and go to work. Just, apparently, we don't believe in germ theory in my family. I don't know. And I thought everybody was like this until maybe some of you are like this too. I thought everybody was until one day when Amy and I were engaged, and I brought Amy home back to Cleveland, Ohio, to my parents' house over Christmas vacation, and we were young and even dumber then, and so... Uh, you're not dumb now, I am. I was young and even dumber then. And uh, we drove through the night. We're so exhausted. We're just getting sick. It's the middle of the winter. And we're just laid out on the couches in my parents' living room, just beat, you know? Just, we were sick. We were rough shape. We were put a bucket by the couch because you can't get up level of sick, you know? It's bad. And we were supposed to host a dinner party at my parents' house that night, right? And uh, other people, let's call them anybody else in their right mind, <laughs> would have canceled those plans, or at the very least rescheduled. But not us, not in my family. My parents hosted that dinner party right there around our half-dead bodies in the middle of the living room. And I thought it was a good idea. I thought it was normal. <laughs> we probably infected half the neighborhood that night, and poor Amy got an education in the strange values of the Turnbull family. In fact, I might even go so far as to say that hard work, responsibility, punctuality, keeping your word, and sucking it up when you're sick are part of the Turnbull family, family values. Except that when I put it that way, it makes me use a controversial phrase. The phrase, family values, right? When I say that, some of you hear one thing, and others of you hear another, and hardly any of us know what anybody else means by it. And I remember the first time that it dawned on me how confusing and controversial that term had become in our culture. I was walking through a parking lot 10, 15 years ago and saw a bumper sticker for the first time that I'm certain you've seen since then. And it's the one that I think, if our power's all back up, is back up on the screen right behind me here. It says, hate is not a family value. And it's old hat now, I guess, but I saw that sticker for the first time and I'm like, well, of course not. Who said that? And yet, I thought about it a little longer. I thought, well, somebody heard that message from somebody, whether somebody meant to say it or not. Apparently, we've gotten a little confused. And this is pretty controversial. So there's a part of me, let's call it the wiser part, 
that says, let's not talk about that today. Let's not use that phrase. It's just going to gum people up. It's just going to get confusing. Another part of me reads the passage that we just read together and thinks, we got to talk about this. Because in that passage, Jesus very clearly said that we are a family. He said we are children of our heavenly father. We are brothers and sisters of Christ. That implies that we are a family together. And he also told us that this family lives by a very particular set of values. So it makes me think we got to talk about this. And maybe given how we usually talk about this, maybe we got to find a new angle on this. Maybe we got to come at this a little different way. Because the truth is that all of us have values that we honor and behaviors that we practice that we have learned in our families of origin or in other families, if you will, other communities or groups that we've been a part of over the years. Could be our, fam could be our families themselves, could be schools, could be workplaces. If you identify with a certain ethnic group, then probably you've learned certain values and behaviors there also. And a lot of these are good. A lot of these are things that we feel good about and can be proud of. A lot of them are also not that. <laughs> a lot of them are also not that helpful to us. In addition to all the positive things that you learned from your family of origin, I bet you picked up some burdens along the way. It happens to all of us. Maybe you learned some unhealthy patterns of communication or some unhealthy ways of forming relationships, and you continue to carry those out now. Maybe in your family, you learned that you could be loved and accepted as long as you fulfilled certain expectations. And so you learned a kind of conditional acceptance, and that affects the way that you think other people see you even still today. And maybe it affects the way that you see and treat other people still today. These can be tough values when we pick them up early. If you're a student in school, you learn things from your classmates and groups of friends. You learn a similar thing that you can be accepted and be in the in-group as long as you do everything everybody else does. Dress like everybody else and make the same choices, even if those choices are selfish and self-destructive. It can be tough values that we learn. Maybe you have learned certain values in places that you have worked or in social environments. Maybe you've learned the value of covering your own backside instead of taking a risk to help somebody else. Maybe in some corporate cultures, you have learned the value of short-term gain over long-term health. It's tough values that we learn, but it's inevitable. All of us learn to, to honor certain values and practice certain behaviors in the communities that give these things to us, shape us, and reinforce those. And it's always been that way. When Jesus sat down to teach his very first disciples about the values of the family of God, what I'm going to dare to call today Jesus' family values, he knew this about them. And so the first thing that he did was he gave them and us now also a new definition of family. And then he also gave them and us, I think, a pretty revolutionary set of values. And I want to show you what I'm talking about here. So if you've got a Bible, this would be a great time to open it up to Matthew chapter 5. We're actually going to kind of start at the end of this passage because I think it'll help us to see where Jesus is going with all of this. And then we'll circle back and pick up the things that he starts with. If you're using one of our Quest Bibles here uh, from the back of the room, this is on page 1419, if that makes it a little bit easier to find. We're going to start reading in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. The first value that Jesus begins talking to his disciples about is the value of how we treat other people who may not treat us well. So this is how Jesus begins in Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. 
He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Let me just pause there to correct a possible misunderstanding. I don't want you to get the idea that this is a conditional deal, that your status as a child of God, like you can be a child of God as long as you do all these things just perfectly and you don't do all of these things wrong, then you can be a child of God, which I think is how this verse sounds when you just lift it out of context. But context is very important. The reason that I know this is not a conditional deal is because in the very next chapter, like after maybe 10 minutes of Jesus' preaching has passed, maybe less than that, Jesus says to these very same disciples, he teaches them to pray, our Father in heaven. And they have not yet learned to embrace and practice all of these values perfectly, and yet he teaches them to believe that they are children of God and to address God as their Father in heaven. I also know from another passage that Jesus looks around at his stumbling, bumbling disciples in the midst of all their failures when they are being challenged by some Pharisees. Jesus looks at them and says, these are my mother and brothers and sisters. And so maybe it is that in some of our families, we have learned the value of conditional acceptance, but that's not really how it works in the family of God. We are children of God as long as we are with Jesus because he is the only begotten son of God and he called us brother and sister. And so it is that we are in the family of God. This is not a conditional deal, but it is a call. It is a call for the children of God to grow up and reflect the values and image of our heavenly father. And the first value that Jesus begins talking to us about is the value of how we treat other people who don't treat us well. And a lot of us have learned certain kinds of values and practices in that area. And we have learned in other places to give back as good as we get. We have learned to love those who love us. We have learned to care about those who care about us. But we could care less about those who don't care about us. But Jesus says that our Heavenly Father has modeled a different kind of behavior. For one thing, He loved us when we did not love Him. And he continues to provide basic blessings for all kinds of people in the world who do not know or love him. Jesus says he created a world where the sun rises on the evil and the good alike, and where the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. And if God has loved us when we have not loved him, and if he continues to love those who do not love him, then we are invited to do the same. Then we are invited to reflect the values of the family that we live in and the values of the one whom we call our Heavenly Father. And when we do otherwise, as we sometimes do, we are simply reflecting the values that we have learned elsewhere. We are living by a different set of family values. And that's exactly what Jesus says next, as a matter of fact, if we continue reading. And if you want to stay with us, we'll be on the same page all the time here this morning. In Matthew 5, 46, Jesus says, Well, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Those are simply the values of a different family. But in our family, we love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us. Have you ever tried that? <laughs> to actively love and serve somebody who is most definitely not actively loving and serving you? They're actually trying to work against you and hurt you? Have you ever tried to pray for God's blessings, to pray for God to do good things in the life of somebody who is out to get you? It's not easy for one thing. And if you've done it, it may not have been comfortable. It may have been a sacrifice. But if you've done that, you know it does stuff to you. It changes you when you do that. It changes your heart. 
Sometimes it also changes other people. Sometimes it changes the very person that you're trying to love and serve who has been unkind to you. Sometimes it changes other people who see your example. And sometimes it doesn't. We wish that it always would, but it doesn't always. Jesus doesn't promise that it will. And that's okay, because it's not our job to change other people. It's most definitely not our job to judge other people. I think Jesus says, we live by the values of our family, whether other people will or whether they won't. And in this family, we love our enemies, and we pray for those who persecute us as children of our Father in heaven, as he has shown and done for us. That's where Jesus is going with all of this. Now let's circle back and pick up a few of the details on the way. The first value that Jesus began talking to his disciples about in this passage is one of honesty and integrity. Let me, let's, let's remind ourselves of what Jesus said about this. This is Matthew chapter 5, and it starts in verse 33. This is on page 1418 there of your quest Bibles. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Some of us try. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. I think we can just kind of begin by acknowledging that oaths and vows sometimes get us into messes. The Bible itself is full of examples of people who took oaths that they didn't really mean or later on wished that they hadn't meant or hadn't done. And even today, where we are probably not all that tempted to swear by the city of Jerusalem or something, we still are subject to the same impulse. We hear and say things like, no, I swear to God, I'm telling the truth. And when I hear that, I have to admit, sometimes I wonder, well, were you not telling the truth before? It kind of calls into question the integrity that we would have in other places. Jesus says we don't have to do that. Disciples of Jesus don't need oaths and vows to verify. Children of God don't need oaths and vows to verify their truthfulness. We practice thoroughgoing, uncompromising honesty. I, I stumbled across a story recently, a short story, that I think kind of illustrates this well. It's a story about a guy named uh, William Stassen. And for those of you who recognize the name, he is the father of Harold Stassen, the former governor of Minnesota and rather infamous once upon a time presidential candidate. William Stassen was a tomato farmer in the area of West St. Paul, Minnesota. And his grandson, uh, who is not the son of Harold Stassen, I think, but through another line, remembers that this tomato farmer grandfather of his used to take him to the vegetable market to sell his tomatoes. And one time he had his tomatoes there on display in some buckets and a, a customer came up who didn't know him and wasn't familiar with his produce, and he began to pick up the tomatoes on top of the basket to look at the tomatoes underneath to make sure that this tomato farmer hadn't hidden the soft and rotten ones at the bottom of the basket underneath the nice tomatoes on the top. And uh, this grandson says he remembers that his grandfather, William Stassen, said to this customer in his gruff voice and old, thick German accent, they're the same true and true. You don't believe it, you go buy somewhere else. <laughs> he had such a reputation for thoroughgoing honesty, he could afford to chase away one new customer because the others all trusted him. But I hear that, true and true. Through and through, true and true. <laughs> it kind of works both ways. 
I think Jesus is telling his disciples, inviting the children of God to live with such a through and through kind of honesty and integrity. And we don't need, I swear to God, we don't need oaths and vows to verify the truthfulness of what we do. We practice honesty as a way of life. The third value that we're looking at today, the second one in the order that Jesus taught them because we began at the end, is one that's, I think, particularly challenging. I think one that has been hard for Christians to live by for as long as there have been Christians. In this case, we're not talking, as Jesus did in, at the very end where we started, about our general approach to people who do not treat us well, but we're going to be hearing specifically about our response when somebody hurts us or wrongs us. And Jesus acknowledges to those who are listening to him that you've heard things like eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He says, but I tell you, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. That's hard. And I should explain that in historical context, an eye for an eye was actually progress. This is an old rule by the time of Jesus, but it was meant actually to be a helpful thing. It was meant to limit the cycle of revenge. If somebody hits you and hurts your eye or causes you the loss of the use of your eye, this old law was meant to say, you're not supposed to kill them in return. It's only an eye for an eye. So it's meant to put a limit on the cycle of revenge and retaliation. But Jesus calls his followers, it's a, very, it's a fairly logical limit as a matter of fact, but Jesus calls his followers to honor a higher value yet. He calls them to honor a value that would put an end to this cycle of violence and revenge and retribution that can so often spin us out of control. And I thought that maybe the best way that I could think of to try to explain what this means is to tell you a couple of short stories. The first one is one that I read in a writer that I have learned to appreciate recently. His name is Jamie Arpin Ricci, and he wrote this actually in a blog post where he was trying to describe in his view what he thought it meant as a Christian to be a man. But I think this story actually illustrates this in particular, this particular value in a good way for all of us. And I brought it along with you so I could just share it with you in his voice. So this is what he said. I remember the first time another guy called me out to fight. I was in my early teens and a kid at the community center just didn't like me. And he told me he was going to kick my the moment I stepped outside. And when I stepped out into the sunshine that day, the first thing I saw across the street was our little white steepled church. And in that moment, I knew I couldn't fight him. And when he appeared with his buddy in tow, I told him I wasn't going to fight. And he laughed and attacked. And he put me in a headlock and demanded that I fight back. He swore at me and called me names, but refused to punch me until I struck at him. But I wouldn't do it. So he let me go and he got in my face, his buddy right beside him. I wasn't gonna run, no matter how badly I wanted to, because I needed him to know that I was not restraining myself simply out of fear. So I stood there and I said nothing. And they shoved me and they called me names. Finally, they took turns spitting on my face. And so I stood there tall and strong and silent. And that is the day I believe I became a man. And when they finally walked away and I wiped the spit off my face, I expected to feel waves of revulsion, shame, and hatred. Anyone who knew me then knows I had a violent temper. 
But instead, a deep peace settled over me, and I sensed the Holy Spirit in a way I had never experienced before and rarely since. And the second story I want to tell you is a story from closer to home. It's a story from one of our own staff people here at First Lutheran, from Melinda Kern, who works in our student ministry department. We were sitting down and reading this passage together as a staff just a few weeks ago, and Melinda shared this story from her own experience, and I have her permission to share it with you today. Melinda, when she first started working here some number of years ago, was also working another job at another business in the area, and she worked at both of these jobs for a little while as she was getting started here. And she said that she remembers how, uh, for some reason, a number of her coworkers in another business seemed to be pretty angry a lot of the time. It felt like they had been wronged and they were clearly interested in settling the score and getting even. Because that's the practice of responding to being wronged that they had learned, that so many of us learn. They also knew that Melinda was a Christian and knew that she worked at a church and they were not interested in her religion. Some of you, I'm sure, know what that feels like. And so Melinda made a strategic decision that she would keep her eyes open for situations like this of being wronged or slighted and made a decision to respond differently, to respond according to the values of the family that she was a part of as a child of God, to respond with strength and peace and grace. And she worked out of a little office in the back of the area where they all worked, and she said she found that after not too long, people kept stopping by, even though it wasn't on their way to anywhere, to talk about what they were angry about, to vent their frustrations, and she realized later, to get calmed down a little bit by somebody who had learned to respond differently. And she found that with time, she became a very effective Christian witness in that place, simply because she made a conscious decision to live by the values of the family that Jesus said she was a part of. And it made her workplace a better place at the same time. I'm sure many of you find yourselves in similar situations with similar opportunities. I think all of us can learn from these teachings of Jesus today. And I'm sure that God, by his spirit, wants to speak to each of our hearts and help us learn from these things. And maybe for some of us, the most important thing, the only thing maybe that God wants to say to us through this passage today is simply to reinforce the simple but profoundly important truth that you are a child of God for Jesus' sake, that that is your identity, that maybe you have learned a kind of conditional acceptance in other groups and families that you have come from. But here God says to you that your identity is child of God. And maybe the most important thing that God wants to say to you by his spirit here today is that that's who you are and that you by every right pray our Father in heaven and that you are welcome in the family of God by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Maybe God is also wanting to speak to some of us about these particular values that Jesus has taught us about today, about the value and practice of honesty in our personal lives, in our business lives, and everywhere that we go. Maybe about the way that we respond when other people hurt us, when we are offended or wronged. Maybe about our general approach, the way that we treat other people who don't treat us well. These are the areas that we live our lives every day. I want to finish today, though, by acknowledging, by sharing with you something that I think is frustrating about the way that 
Many Christians embrace Jesus' family values and also share with you a dream of a better way. For some reason, and maybe we could all speculate on what that reason or those reasons are, but for some reason, it seems that certain sides of Jesus' family values have been embraced or are embraced or are endorsed by certain sides of Jesus' family differently from others. For example, the value that we learned from the passage we read last week, the first half of this passage, what Jesus taught there about sexuality and marriage seems to be endorsed or embraced by that part of the Christian family to whom the world applies its label conservative. And the value, for example, that we learned this week about nonviolent responses to violence seems to be more often or more vocally endorsed by that side of the Christian family to which the world applies its label, liberal. And we wind up broken up against one another into camps, and we find ourselves loyal to labels that weren't ours in the first place when Jesus actually said all these things and invited us into a deeply different and powerful life. And I imagine that frustrates many of you as much as it does me. And yet, I know that it does not have to be this way. Imagine what would happen if all of God's children gathered for worship here in this place, and in the building across the street over there, and in the building around the corner over there, and all across this town and land and world, if all of us together, first of all, simply believed what Jesus said about us, that we are, in fact, children of God together. If it simply dawned on us how radical and rich that grace must be and how much God must love us. I mean, do you think that would do something in our hearts if we had a glimpse of the heart of the Father for us? And then what if we together as a church family, as a Christian family, broadly speaking, embraced these values of Jesus together and grew to reflect the image of our heavenly Father in whose image we have in fact been created, the image of God being restored to us as the Holy Spirit works in our lives. And what would happen What if the next generation of Christians were formed in these values, all of them, in honesty and purity and holiness and peacemaking and response in peace even to our enemies? What if the next generation of Christians was formed in that set of values instead of in the values that are given to us by so many other groups and so many other places in our lives? I mean, could that be a family where we would find hope? Do you think that kind of family could be a blessing to the world around us? And could it be a a testimony of hope that there's a better way of living life together to anybody who was interested in a better way? I mean, I think it could be amazing. I think it would be amazing. And I want you to know, everybody here today, I want us all to know for absolutely certain that Jesus has invited you into this family, that you are welcomed and loved by God in Jesus Christ. And maybe that's not something, maybe it's not an experience that you've really had before. And maybe today's your day to respond to that. Maybe today's your day to say yes to Jesus and to experience the wash of his grace, the certainty of God's love for you now, and the certainty of your life with the people of God and with the grace of God forever and ever. Amen. And maybe today's the day to say yes to him and sign up for the entry into a brand new life, a deeply different and powerful life. Maybe today's your day on that. Maybe today is our day on that. To all reach out and put our hands in the circle together and say, we're in on that together. 
Maybe today is your day to say yes, because I want to be in on that with you. Let's pray together. Good and gracious God, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you that you have called us your children, that you have loved us when we did not love you. And I pray, God, that you would reassure each of us of that in our hearts. And God, I pray that by your spirit, you would grow us up as children in your family to reflect your character and your image, to live by the values of the family of God as Jesus has taught them to us. God, I pray that you would plant your hope in our hearts, your grace in our lives, and make us to be a blessing in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.